Uh, some people know that, would mean, when I say some people, that means me. <laughs> some people know that I'm fascinated by questions in the Bible. Like, why did that happen? <laughs> I'm fascinated by questions in the Bible. You've all heard of answers in Genesis. I did a message once, questions in Genesis, in which I talked about every question that's asked in the book of Genesis. Um, and so I, questions in the Bible fascinate me, and I tend to meditate on them as I sometimes try to answer them. And today is the end result of one of those efforts. Um, so I ask you, were you raised to say thank you? Were you raised by good parents, in other words? Were you raised to say thank you? If someone gives you something valuable, are you inclined to give them something in return to pay them back? One of the other profs at the university I have right now uncomfortable because I bought lunch for him the other day, and now he is desperate to buy lunch for me, and it hasn't worked out yet. In, in, in politics, well, this is kind of one virtue that has become a vice in politics. You get money from somebody and you pay them back. But anyway, I digress. Uh, today we're going to talk about a question in the Bible that has to do with this, which is Psalm 116, verse 12, a verse that I've meditated on quite a bit. Psalm 116, verse 12, an unknown psalmist poses the following question, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? The LSB translation says, what shall I give to Yahweh in return for all his bountiful dealings with me? Have you ever meditated on that question? It's a mind-boggling question. What can I give the Lord? There are two aspects to this question as I see it. The first is, what do I give to someone who has everything? Now, we use that phrase, right, when someone's wealthy or whatever, what do you give the guy who has everything? But they, he really literally doesn't have everything. But God really literally does have everything. What do you give to someone who has everything and on top of that needs nothing? Acts 17.25 tells us that God is not served by human hands and that he doesn't need anything. Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12, tell us that the whole world is his and all that is in it. In Luke 17.10, Jesus reminds us that no matter what we do, we only do what we ought to have done. So we can't make up any ground. We can't make up any ground in terms of, of giving to the Lord because all that we do is just what we ought to do. We can't give him anything extra. And this is why, it, to me, it's a mind-boggling question and why I've meditated on this for quite some time. But there's another aspect to the question that is also very difficult. What can I give in return for immeasurable, boundless benefits? If we're going to give something in return to Yahweh, the, what could we possibly give him in return when in return for implies the notion of equal value, right? 
So this prof is going to buy me lunch at some point, presumably, and that's of equal value to the lunch that I bought for him. Well, I'll make sure it is. Um, <laughs> but how do you give an equal value return? I uh, ask you to turn to Psalm 103 to see how daunting this task is. In Psalm 103, we know the psalmist here, it's David, and he talks about God's amazing gifts to us. Look at verse, starting in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all of your spiritual diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, that's the resurrection, who crowns you with loving kindness, that's grace and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Skip down to verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor keep his anger forever, because he's taken care of that. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. I have that one underlined. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Okay, I ask you, what can we possibly give? in return for those benefits? I've pondered these questions a lot, and I've come up with an answer. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I've come up with only one logical answer, though it is seemingly completely inadequate. And that is, I should give him what he asks for. Just like a Christmas list, right? What do I give the person who has everything? Well, wait for their Christmas list. Fortunately, God gives us a Christmas list in a sense. He tells us what he wants from us, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want us to spend our time today in pursuit of what God asks us to give him in return for what he has given us. Is it money? I noticed that in the bulletin today that the, the faith promise. Uh, total for this week was $75,000. I keep track of that. It's amazing. But is that what he asks for? Does he ask us for sacrifices and rituals? Does he ask us to dedicate our children to him like Samuel's mother Hannah did? Does he ask us to go on missions trips? Does he ask us to preach? Does he ask us for other various types of service in the church, like the nursery? What does he ask us for? Well, let's talk about what it isn't first. 
It's not good intentions. We give a lot for good intentions in our culture, in this life, but they don't go very far with God. It's not good intentions. In 2 Samuel 6, a guy named Uzzah was struck down for touching the ark of God, which, by the way, Numbers 4.15 tells us is a deadly offense, touching the ark of God. But wait a minute. And when I was a kid and, and, I, and I saw the flannel graph story in, in Sunday school class, I thought, wait a minute, that's not fair, because what happened? They're moving the ark on a cart, right? And the cart hits a stone or something, it starts to tip over, and so he's trying to save the ark from falling over, and he touches the ark, and boom, God strikes him dead. His intentions were good, but he was disobedient to God's law. And by the way, there's more to the story. We don't have time for it. But they weren't supposed to put the ark on a cart to begin with. So they were sinning from the start, from the jump. But that's a whole other issue. The point is, good intentions aren't enough. That isn't what God asks for. Secondly, he doesn't ask us for our own plan that violates his instruction. In 1 Samuel 15, you have Saul, who's given very strict instructions as to what to do with Agag and all of his stuff, and Saul decides he has a better idea. He's going to say, and the instructions are, kill every animal. But Saul decides it would be better if he saved the really good animals so that he could sacrifice the really good animals to the Lord. And he's disobedient, and he doesn't kill all of the animals. Um, And as a result, God says, you are removed as king. It's, it's not in the case with God better to ask forgiveness than permission. You know, we say that in our culture, right? If you want to re- really do something, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. And you do it and then say, I'm sorry. It's not better with God. So, He doesn't ask us for good intentions. He doesn't ask us for our own plan. And related to the uh, Saul story again, he also doesn't ask us for sacrifices and offerings and rituals. 1 Samuel 15, 22, of course, says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Because Samuel said, hey, you know, I wanted to sacrifice. No, that's not it. The sacrifice isn't the key. The key is obedience. And by the way, If you obey, there's no need to sacrifice. The sacrifices are there as a picture to deal with the disobedience. Um, So, y'all, and and also, Saul is also thinking like the world, because all the other gods could be bought off by sacrifices. I teach ancient Greek history and ancient Roman history, and they both made lots of sacrifices, the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans, And in their view, they're buying off the gods. They're bribing the gods. And the the gods are saying plenty good. But for God, that doesn't work. You can't bribe God. You can't buy off God. And so, what is it then? If we look at Psalm 40, in Psalm 40... 
about this idea of sacrifices in verses 6 through 8, David says, Sacrifice and meal offering thou hast not desired. My ears thou hast opened, burnt offering and sin offering thou hast not required. Then I said, Behold, I come, and the scroll of the book that is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Thy law is within my heart. This identifies what God asks for from us. He asks for obedience. Go back to Psalm 116 if you're there or were there. Go back to Psalm 116. The psalmist who posed the question in Psalm 116 gave an answer. Look at verse 14 of Psalm 116. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Look at verse 18. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Now, without getting into a lot of detail that you and I, neither one of us know, I'm just borrowing it from the people who do know, this is talking about vows to the Lord as a slave. Vows to the Lord as a slave. A vow was a commitment to the Lord. Abner taught us that last week. A vow is a commitment to the Lord. And so he says, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. That is, I shall keep what the Lord has commanded. I will be, I am like a slave. What does a slave do? A slave obeys his master. That's what he does. Back up at verse 9 of Psalm 116, he says, I shall walk before the Lord. And this uh, phrase, walk before the Lord, is a vow of obedience. We're all familiar with how in the epistles, Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and of our calling. And that is obedience. It is obeying the Lord. So what should, what can I give to God? Well, what does he ask for? Obedience. Now, let's go back to the beginning, to the first man and first woman. Think back to your childhood Sunday school days, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. God placed two unfallen people in a bountiful, perfect world and told them they could enjoy its full bounty and then asked for just one thing, obedience to one command. You can have every tree in the garden, just not this one. That's my one command. Just obey it. Don't touch that tree. You can have everything else. And unfallen people couldn't do it. And they fell. And the immediate penalty, they were told the immediate penalty would be what? Death. And it was. The immediate penalty was death in the sense of that death ultimately means, which is separation from God. They were immediately separated from God, illustrated by their physical removal from the garden. Remember, God took them out of the garden, placed an angel there, uh, and he did that graciously to allow them to continue to live physically so that mankind would not be unredeemable and be separated from God 
forever. If they had eaten of the tree of life in a fallen condition, they would have been stuck fallen forever. God allowed them graciously to live for a while, establish the human race, and start the trajectory toward Jesus' sacrifice to bring them back from their fallen condition. But they died. They died because they were separated from God, and it was pointing towards their ultimate physical death and pointing towards ultimate spiritual death if something wasn't done about it. From that point on, from that point on, we have all deserved to die instantly when we disobey God, like Uzzah did. We are alive literally by the grace of God. We don't just get benefits by the grace of God. We don't just enjoy life by the grace of God. We don't just, but we are alive by the grace of God. We deserve to die instantly when we disobey, like Adam and Eve did. God reminds us throughout the Bible, throughout the biblical record, he reminds us of this with object lessons scattered through the Bible. We mentioned Uzzah, who touched the ark and was instantly killed. Nadab and Abihu offered an improper sacrifice and were instantly killed. If that were the case today, I can think of some churches, I don't know, stadiums in Houston and whatnot, in which there'd be lightning flashes every week. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and were instantly killed. These are object lessons that serve as warnings about the seriousness of disobeying God and the greatness of God's grace in allowing us to live. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this threat of punishment also leads us to the greatest of blessings, the greatest benefit that God gives us, which is salvation. In Ephesians 2, Paul explains that we were what because of our disobedience? Dead. We were dead because of our disobedience, just like Uzzah was dead when he disobeyed, and Nadab and Abihu were dead when they disobeyed, and Ananias and Sapphira were dead when they disobeyed, and Adam and Eve were dead when they disobeyed. We were dead in our disobedience. We were dead. But he says, we were dead because of our disobedience, separated from God, and were completely unable to do anything about it. When I taught on this once before in this very room. I had Joe lie down on the ground, and I said, you're dead. And then I took a pill, and I put it on his chest, and I said, you're dead. Take the pill to come back to life. This pill will bring you back to life. Take it. But he couldn't, because he was dead. We were completely unable to do anything. God then, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, God in his mercy made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him by his grace. How could we possibly respond appropriately? Well, 
what did he make us alive and raise us up to do? In Ephesians 2, when we continue to read, Paul explains. In verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, for good works here doesn't mean works that get you salvation, and it doesn't mean good works that are inherently good. It means good, it means the things that God has commanded us to do. That, and then he goes on to say that we should walk in them. That same notion. How do we live? We live doing good. Good defined by what God has commanded. That's what good is. He raised us alive with Christ from being dead for good works, to obey him, to do good in the sense of doing right, so that we would walk in obedience to him. We were saved for a purpose, to be obedient, to obey God's commands. And amazingly enough, even in the process of securing that salvation for us, Jesus demonstrated the obedience that God demands and deserves. We're familiar with Jesus' prayer in Matthew 26, 39. In the garden, just before he's arrested, Matthew 26, 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. I'm here to do your will. Contemplating, bearing the sins of mankind which was the real suffering that Jesus went through. Obviously, the rest of it was bad too, but a lot of people have suffered physically uh, through crucifixion and other horrible deaths. But no one has suffered like Jesus because nobody else had the weight of the sins of all mankind placed on him. And nobody else who has suffered has suffered being perfect and unfallen and having the weight of the sins of all mankind dumped on them. And nobody who was God, part of the Trinity, has suffered by being separated from God the Father, which he knew this would do, having the sins of mankind put on him. Contemplating bearing the sins of mankind and thereby being separated from the Father, but his prayer ends, not as I will, but you will. Looking ahead to this day, Jesus talked about it in John 18. Excuse me, John 10:18. In John 10:18, he told his disciples that he would lay down his life on his own initiative. But then what he said was interesting. I lay down my life on my own initiative because this commandment I received from my Father. Jesus was obedient 
he would be obedient. He's telling the disciples, that time is coming and I will be obedient. I will do the will of my Father. Paul in Romans 5.19 talks about the significance of this. He contrasts the deadly effects of the disobedience of Adam with the saving effects of Christ's obedience. In Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, the many were made sinners, caused the fall of the human race, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That's how salvation comes to be. Because Jesus was obedient. He prayed, if I don't have to, don't make me do this, but your will be done. He told his disciples, I will lay down my life because this is the commandment I received from my Father, and I will be obedient. Obedience to the Father was the essence of Christ's saving work. Because the sacrifice had to be righteous. When I spoke to the men in ISI a few weeks ago, I was talking about why the sacrifice had to be Jesus. Why couldn't God have just created another person, another Adam, an innocent guy, and then sacrifice him? Because innocence isn't the key. Righteousness is the key. Righteousness means you have obeyed. You have been tested and you've come through the test. You have, you have overcome, as Jesus says. And as Revelation talks about in the end, he who overcomes, he overcame, he is righteous. And that was shown in his sacrifice while on earth. The sacrifice had to be righteous. Obedience produces righteousness. Righteousness was achieved by Jesus by overcoming temptation and remaining obedient, unlike Adam. He came to fix what Adam messed up. Paul reports Christ's obedience in Philippians 2.8. We're all familiar with that, right? That he, but he says he was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And then Paul uses that to urge us to obedience in verses 12 and 13, which I invite you to read later. Verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what does God ask of us? Obedience. Why? I'm going to suggest six reasons that God asks us to be obedient. The first is, he wants us to live with him again. God doesn't like that we're separated from him by our sin. He wants us to live with him again. God is holy, so all who live with him must be holy. Whether in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.2, or in the New Testament, in Matthew 5.38 or James 2.10, the standard is perfect obedience if you want to live in God's presence. In the new heaven and the new earth, God will dwell with men again, as in Eden, 
In Revelation 21.3, it talks about it. To make that happen, we must, on the basis of Christ's work, ultimately be transformed into incorruptible resurrection bodies. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 15. In the meantime, saving faith works to produce obedience in this life. So God wants us to live with him again. He wants to dwell. He wants to tabernacle with man again. And for that to happen, we have to be obedient. Secondly, our obedience pleases him. In Hebrews 13 and 1 John 3, we are either slaves obeying God, producing righteousness, or slaves obeying sin, producing death. Dr. MacArthur mentioned that this morning. We're slaves to God or we're slaves to sin. One produces righteousness, the other produces death. God wants us alive. He died himself to make that possible. And with saving faith, as Romans 6.17 tells us, we, we become obedient from the heart. That's what Romans 6.17 says. We become obedient from the heart. That is, we desire to obey God. And that pleases Him. Third, we are purified by our obedience. In 1 Peter 1 Peter 1.14, Peter talks to the flock as obedient children and says, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And then in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 22, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Obedience purifies our souls. James says the same thing in the previous book before 1 Peter in your Bible, in chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And the issue there in the context is obedience. That is how we purify our hearts. We are purified by obedience. That's why God wants us to be obedient. Fourth, obedience demonstrates that we have saving faith. Obedience demonstrates that we have saving faith. Abraham is a great example of this because there's 
at least three instances that we can go to. Um, In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, Verses 1 to 3, the Lord gives Abram a command. Pick up your stuff and move. Go from Ur to Canaan. And verse 4 says, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. He obeyed. And the writer of Hebrews, in the famous faith chapter, In Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, By faith, that is saving faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. But he obeyed anyway. Then, in chapter 22 of Genesis, we have the story that we're all familiar with, in which Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son at God's command. And what does God say in verse 12 of Genesis 22? God stops him as he raises the dagger to kill his son. He says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham proved his saving faith through his willingness to obey the most difficult thing he could have been asked to do. If you're a parent, you know that if you were Abraham, you would rather take the dagger yourself than to kill your only son. I go, oh, I don't know that. I don't have a son. But I got sons-in-laws. Well, I might do it. Anyway. (laughs) Now, James, in chapter 2, referring back to the example of Abraham, says something very interesting that if you're not thinking about it, you can sometimes miss. In James chapter 2, verse 21, James says this, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up... Justified by here doesn't mean justified in terms of salvation. It means other things, but it basically means to confirm that you have saving faith, all right? He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And then in verse 23, James says this, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, Now, what's interesting is the first part in which he showed his saving faith 
was many years after he was saved. Many years after he had saving faith and back in, in chapter 12. And so, what did doing the next one say? It confirmed his saving faith. It demonstrated that he had the saving faith that he already had years before. All right. In the in this faith chapter, Hebrews eleven, the heroes of the faith. This guy had faith by doing this. This woman had faith by doing this, and so on. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but these are all descriptions of what they did in obedience to God to demonstrate their faith. They're all cases of obedience that demonstrated that they had saving faith. In Romans 16, 19, Paul commends the church in Rome, and he rejoices over their obedience, not their faith, their obedience, because that demonstrates their faith. That's what gives evidence of their salvation. So obedience demonstrates that we have saving faith. A fifth reason that God wants us to obey is that obedience shows whether or not we love God. Obedience shows whether or not we love God. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, You will feel warm and tingly emotions when you sing hymns. Wait, that's a different translation. We don't show love by emotional outbursts or by getting caught up in the spirit and speaking in tongues or doing something else. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. One chapter later, in John 15, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Again, it's following Jesus' example of obedience to the Father. That's how we demonstrate that we love God, is by obedience. In 1 John 5, 3, John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And in 2 John 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. There again, that concept of walking related to obedience. Do you want God to know that you love him? Obey. Keep his commandments. Finally, one other 
reason that God wants us to obey is that God is glorified by our obedience. Shadrach and his buddies obeyed God under extreme circumstances, such that we couldn't imagine. By the way, we're going to toss you into this furnace. Okay. My... uh, my grandsons, one of them at least, likes really hot sauce, but I don't think he's ready for a fiery furnace. <laughs> they obeyed God under extreme circumstances, and the result was what? Daniel chapter 3. The result was that a pagan king publicly, through official pronouncement, publicly glorified Yahweh. Why? Daniel 3.29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, serious, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. How does he know how God is able to deliver? Because Shadrach and his buddies obeyed. They obeyed. They obeyed God by disobeying an ungodly command going and going and taking the punishment. And as a result, God was able to deliver and God was glorified. Then we just have to go three chapters over to find the example of Daniel, who obeyed God under extreme circumstances. We don't usually face lion's dens, either. He obeyed God under extreme circumstances, and the result was another pagan king, publicly declaring that Yahweh, Daniel 6, 26, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. and his dominion will be forever. People living according to God's commandments in normal everyday life, like you and me, are also a testimony to a dying world of the reality and power of the living God. That's why in Titus 2, Paul takes the time to go through people in all different age groups and tell them, here's how you ought to live in front of that dying world. At each stage of life, he teaches them how to live obediently in order to, as he puts it, adorn the gospel. To adorn the gospel, to make it attractive. People watch us, and when we're obedient to God, they see something different from what they see from everybody else. And that adorns the gospel. As some have put it, he teaches us how to be winsome in order to win some. 
to Christ. And his instruction concludes with this injunction to live sensibly, righteously, and godly and be zealous for good deeds. Not zealous for good deeds because that's going to get you saved, because God's going to count up how many good deeds you have, and then you're going to be saved. It's you are saved, and so you should be doing good deeds because good deeds, by definition, are obedient to God. God's command, who tells you to be good. Back to Psalm 103. In conclusion, some of you are freaking out right now. Fraser's going to let us out 10 minutes early when he usually goes 10 minutes over. I am doing it in return for past blessings. (laughs) Psalm 103. We, see, we saw David's listings of the blessings of the Lord in Psalm 103, but David's response is the same as the psalmist in 116. Go to verses 17 and 18 of Psalm 103. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant, and who remember his precepts to do them. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all you hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. That's how we know you are his hosts. You're doing his will. It's obedience to God's covenant, his precepts, his word, his will. They're all different words for the same thing. Being obedient to what the Lord asks us to do or commands us to do. So how do we conclude such a study as this? Ecclesiastes, we turn to the wisest man who ever lived. Not me. How did the wisest man who ever lived end his investigation of life in this world. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and grateful for your many benefits to us that we certainly don't deserve, but we enjoy. We thank you, Father, for the blessings of family, the blessings of church, the blessings of occupation, the blessings of doing something worthwhile with our lives, the blessings of friends, the blessings of food, the blessings of entertainment. Father, all the many blessings that you give us, but in particular, Father, the blessings of your word and the blessings of salvation. Father, we know that it's, it's more than we can ever repay, 
But that's okay because it was more than we could do from the beginning. But Father, we are so thankful and grateful. We ask you to help us to do the one thing that you asked for, to be obedient. Amen.